We're headed for Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, if you're joining with us, what we've been doing is we've been talking about uh, the life of Abraham. There's a story that I read that I wasn't familiar with. The phrase, the real McCoy, Okay, I always thought it came from something with Hatfields and McCoys, but that's not the case. There was, um, there was two slaves back in the 1840 that they all of us escaped late at night. The man and woman took off from the farm there in Kentucky where they were at. They crept through the woods. They made it to the first site, and eventually through the Underground Railroad, they passed all the way through the, some of these northern states, and they eventually got up into Canada. There they stayed. They had their freedom. They got married, and they ended up, then their first child was born. Uh, in 1843. They called the boy, as you can see up here, Elijah. And uh, they and Elijah and then the other family that came in time eventually moved down to Detroit, Michigan. There in Detroit, the dad got a job, started to be, uh, be successful, and eventually he was able to start his own business, and he became a very successful businessman there in Detroit, and eventually became wealthy enough that he could send his oldest son Elijah overseas to Scotland to train in one of the world's best engineering schools at that time. And so the young man went over there, came back, and came back to the Detroit region with his degree in engineering and couldn't find a job. Part of it was because of his race. And eventually the only job he got was working for a railroad and that was basically you know, shoveling coal, doing things like that. And so he noticed that while he was working there and starting to just by working, be moving up in the ranks where all of a sudden he became a foreman and he became a little bit more involved. He noticed that one of the things that seemed to have uh, wasted a lot of time was that the, the, the engineers, conductors, would have to stop these trains every so often and they'd have to lubricate. They'd have to grease oil, whatever you want to call it, the different parts. When he started thinking, there's got to be a way that I could create something that would self-lubricate and keep these parts going so they wouldn't have to stop as frequently and they could keep the industry moving along. So he patented a device brought it back to the railroad system. They loved it. They absolutely loved it. Then he patented a few more devices similar to that where eventually what he did is he developed 42 or received 42 different patents for the self-lubricating devices that he adapted for a variety of different engines and different applications and became very, very popular, very, very knowledgeable, developed his own business. And it came to a point that a lot of people wanted to copy and try to duplicate his type of devices. But his were so well done that it was very hard to duplicate them. And many of the companies, when they, the others were trying to sell their inferior devices to these major companies, they would say, no, we want the real McCoy. They were called the McCoy. After the inventor, Elijah McCoy. And that term became in industry the idea of we want the original. We want the best. We don't want a duplicate. And eventually it became a phrase that still sticks with our society today where we use that euphemism, the real McCoy, without knowing where it came from. But it just means we want the best. We want the original. We want the one that is the superior and not some substitute. In a spiritual way, God wants you to have real McCoy faith. He doesn't want you to have make-believe faith. He doesn't want you and me to just come along and go through a church and go through the pretenses of having real faith. He wants us to have the genuine thing. What he designed, what he desired, what he has patented for us to be able to have that is real, that is going to work the best. Genesis 17 and 18 is when he's dealing with Abraham and Sarah and trying to move them along to that point that they grab on and hang on to that real faith. The setting is kind of interesting in this story where he's dealing with it. We looked at chapter 17 last week 
where he dealt with the, when he dealt primarily with Abraham and came to Abraham and reassured him, you are going to have a son. In fact, you're going to have the son by Sarah. And Abraham's response was, well, wait a minute, why don't, why don't you take my eldest son that I had by surrogate Hagar. Why don't you take him instead? And God said, no, he's not the one. He's not the one that I have planned. You and Sarah, despite your age, your body's inabilities uh, to parent a child, you're going to have a child in your old age. So is she. And God gave him in chapter 17 all those reassurances and we looked how God, talking to Abraham, built him up from where he was doubting at the beginning of the chapter and saying, well, I, I got a son. It's three, it's, his name is is Isaac. Use, um, not Isaac, uh, Ishmael. Use him instead. And to the end of the chapter where he says, God, I'll do whatever you want. I believe you. And now we come to chapter 18 and it's his wife that is struggling with that same promise. I don't know how many days, weeks it is later. It seems not much more than that by some of the comments that we'll show you in a minute. But what happens in chapter 18 is Sarah has her moment of doubt. She has her moment of, of saying, God, I'm not so sure that I can fully trust and believe that you said I'm supposed to have a child. That just seems too amazing. And yet by the end of the chapter, we will read, in fact, we will read shortly thereafter, according to Hebrews 11, she can came to a place of real faith. Now, I understand the majority of you that read this chapter and the majority of books that you'll pick up are going to talk about Genesis 18 being a uh, chapter that'll give us lots of lessons about hospitality. Do you remember the setting of what happens here? Abraham is sitting at his tent. It's about high noon according to chapter 18 verse 1. And all of a sudden what happens as the story kind of unfolds and we read a little bit of it, the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre and he sat in the tent door about the heat of the day about noontime three o'clock. He lifted up his eyes and looked and lo, three men stood by him. When he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door, bowed himself toward the ground and said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, pass not away, I pray thee from thy servant, but let a little water, I pray thee, be fetched. But he must have been from, from central PA, right? This idea of he's going to fetch the water and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort you with your hearts and after that you shall pass on for therefore are you come to your servant. And they said, okay, do as you have said. Abraham hastened into the tent and said to Sarah, make ready quickly three measures of meal, knead it, make the cakes upon the hearth. And he ran into the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man and he hasted to dress it. He took the butter and the milk and the calf which he dressed and set it before them and he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. So lots of lessons. See, some will say this is the most important part of this passage. It's about hospitality. No doubt hospitality is involved. No about this is a doubt this is a picture of good hospitality. And this is the passage that many say in Hebrews chapter 13 where it says that some have entertained angels unawares that they are referring to this one episode where Abraham is entertaining these individuals that are called three young men. But as the story moves along into chapter 19 we find out that they are angels of God, two of them, and probably the third is a Christophany or appearance of Jesus Christ. And so Abraham is going to do this hospitality thing. He's commended for it in Hebrews for being one who shows such hospitality. And it's, it's something that is very commendable. No doubt about it. It's high noon. It's siesta time in a culture that takes siesta. And when these guys show up he is going to go through the work saying to his wife let's do some cooking. Saying to himself let's get this calf taken care of and let's get it cooked in 
the heat of the day he's going way out of his way. We understand that these are apparently strangers to them. He doesn't know, it seems to be the sense, who they are initially. But he's more than welcome to entertain these individuals, which was customary and was part of that culture. And the, the fact that he is going to go through so much work, and let's, let's be frank, if your husband came running in and said to you, he said, okay, let's get some, some cake done right away. Okay, we're such a microwave society. Here, they're going to take a little bit longer. This is going to be a process that's going to take more of the afternoon. Fetching the calf, getting the calf, you know, slaughtered, prepared, cooking it. There's going to be an involvement of time. And so he's going out of his way. It's commendable. There's no doubt about it. He didn't pass it off and say, hey, listen, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a rain check. You, next time you come through, we'll do something, but we're just not prepared. He's, he's going to exercise hospitality. Now, a couple authors that I know made a great point of this that they said make sure your congregation knows that Abraham did part of the cooking. That so hospitality shouldn't be left for the woman alone. And this passage teaches that. Well, you can take it for what it's worth. Which one of you in my home, you do the cooking. Otherwise, we would kill our company. Okay, so it's better if you cook and not me. And so Abraham, there's this picture of hospitality. I don't think that's the main gist of the passage. I have no doubt that it's a good illustration and it gives us some principles of how they acted in those days. But that is not what the story's about. The story is not given so that we learn to be hospitable and fetch the cattle and make the bread. The story is given to talk about building faith. That's what's been happening in the last three chapters. It continues into this chapter. The person who needs the faith built is Sarah, as I already alluded to. Do you remember what happens as they're sitting and eating, and one of the men asks the question. Jump down into verse, into verse 9. Watch where this whole conversation is going. They said unto him, Hey, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, Oh, she's in the tent. And the the the, the Christophany speaks, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, your wife, is going to have a son. Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. She isn't there. So she's somewhere in, in another area. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and well-stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of woman. They want us to understand that if she's going to have a baby, it's going to be a what? It's going to be a miracle. There's no doubt about it. That's very clear. And so Sarah hears this news, and when Sarah hears the news, what is her response? She laughs. She laughs out of pure joy and enthusiasm and excitement. No, no. Why does she laugh? She doesn't believe it, right? It's not a laughter of, I accept this and this is going to be the most exciting you know, event. She's laughing because she's like, oh yeah, right. That like, that's going to happen. How do I know that? Well, watch the story. Watch how it unfolds. It says in the text that she laughed within herself saying, after I am waxed old, shall I have the pleasure of a child? My Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child when I am old? By the way, what have we learned back in verse 12? Who is she talking to when she makes these comments? Who is she laughing to when she makes the comments? To herself. And yet, does the Lord know what she's thinking as if it was out loud? 
Yeah, okay. We go on a little bit more. We'll come back to that in a moment. Okay. Shall I ever surely bear a child? And he says, you know, is anything... Uh, the Lord responds. I'm sorry, verse 13. The Lord said, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I ever surely bear a child when I, which am old? He knew exactly what she was thinking, what she was uh, saying. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah now knows the conversation. She says, I didn't laugh. Because now she's, why? She realizes something about these, excuse the expression, she realized something about these dudes sitting in her husband's tent, right? They are abnormal individuals. How so? They know what she's thinking. They know what she's doing in private. What does that reveal? There's, these aren't just normal fellas. These are spiritual beings. I mean, we're spiritual beings, but they are, these are heavenly beings. And she is afraid at this moment. And he says to her, she says, I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. And he says, no, you did. I know you did, and you know you did. And it goes on a little bit, and the men rose up, and then there's other conversation. Here's our point. Now, I want you to just hang on to this text. Jump to Hebrews chapter 11 just to see what is stated about Sarah, okay? She giggles, she laughs, she is doubting, okay? Is that a fair, is that fair that we'd say she had doubts at this moment? Yay, is that the way it's unfolding? Yes, no? Say yes. Yes, okay, okay, there we go. Okay, we're all in agreement. Now go to Hebrews. Hebrews is revealing something that happened at this moment or shortly thereafter, she had a change of spirit and a change of mind. In Hebrews 11, it's talking about her great faith. After it's talked a little bit about Abraham, look down in verse 11. Though uh, It says, through faith also Sarah herself received strength to what? To conceive the seed and delivered. Because she judged him faithful who had, she believed him. She moves from laughter to absolute belief. How did she do that? What was it that moved her from that moment where she said, yeah, right, this is really going to happen to me. It happens to others, but not to me. How did, what, what, was, what was in this conversation? What was in this setting that all of a sudden she grew to a point where in the next weeks, months, she is having no doubt counting God faithful and making sure that she is focused and fixed. The same thing happened in chapter 17 when Abraham, he doubted and he even made those same type of comments, if I'm not mistaken, in chapter 17. Let's just flip back there for a second. Uh, uh, when... Um, in verse 17 of 17, when God said, Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a child, then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old? Shall Sarah that is 90 years old? And God says, yes. By the way, isn't it strange that the husband and wife both responded the same way when they heard the promise? They both laughed as if, yeah, right. How's this going to be? And so here we have both of them in chapter 17. God moved Abraham. Now he comes and he moves in the heart of Sarah and talks with her. And so something happened. Some things were displayed about God that moved her to build her faith. This is one of them that stands out to me. The affection of God Almighty. 
The affection. The affection is seen in this regards. Is he approached them. That God came to them. That God cared so much that they would move in faith. That God now has made several appearances to Abraham. Chapter 12. Chapter 15. Chapter 17. God came to him on multiple occasions and said, Abraham, you will have a son. You will have a son. And each time he elaborated as we looked at last week and gave a little bit more details about what these promises involved. Now he comes and he's going to talk to Sarah. I am convinced in my heart that Sarah heard from Abraham what God had told him. The reason I say that is go to chapter 18 verse 19. Watch the commendation that is given about Abraham and what God says about Abraham in relationship to what he would share with his family. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken. Abraham is known before the Spirit of God, before the Christology of the Old Testament. He is known as an individual that would relay to his family spiritual truths. Doesn't that say to you that Abraham, when he heard the promises of we're going to have a son, we're going to have a son and it's going to be by you, Sarah, that he probably shared those those promises with her and she has got this in her mind uncertain and all of a sudden these strangers show up. Why did these strangers show up? To reaffirm her that her husband wasn't, you know, wasn't dreaming dreams. That her husband wasn't, you know, wasn't, you know, smoking something he shouldn't have been. That he had a real revelation from God that said that they would become parents including this woman who was that elderly. And God's care that she would grow in faith that God would come and make a visit for her. And I think it's displayed in the very beginning of the conversation that the spirit beings have with Abraham. After they put the food in front, their first question is, where's your wife? How's Sarah doing? This visit wasn't for Abraham's sake alone. It was for whose? Sarah's for her benefit, for her help. So God asking about her, but it's not only seen in his approach to trying to help her, knowing that she needs this encouragement, knowing that she needs that help, but there's a reproach that happens in this verse. We know that her response was one of laughter. It wasn't commendable laughter. It wasn't faith laughter. It wasn't joy laughter. She is rebuked for laughing in doubt. And he is the, the Lord says to her, you know, anything, everything is possible. You can't even deny that you laughed. And he wants her to grow in her faith. Not that she has the doubt, but she has confidence. And he makes the statement to her. She needs to hear this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? She needs that reassurance for her. Her husband has already told her. Her husband has said, I believe, but she needed something for her. Isn't it gracious of God that at times he looks at you where you are at. He cares enough that he brings his word to speak to a need in your life very, very clearly. Not necessarily everybody else's. Well, it could be. But he knows where you're at. He speaks to your heart. He deals with you and he gives you what you need at that moment. The loving concern that God has isn't limited to just the select few. Like the patriarch of the family. Like the husband of the home. Like the leadership only. He comes, he pays a visit for the woman's sake 
for Sarah's sake, to encourage her. In fact, the correction too isn't limited to just a few. He graciously cares enough that he would correct even this one that could hide behind her husband's coattail spiritually. He says, no, I want you to grow spiritually. I want to help you spiritually. I want to I commend you and I want to correct you where you need to grow spiritually. The affection of the Lord for the individual saint who needs that moment of encouragement, that moment of blessing no matter what your status within the family environs, in the church environment. God comes to us. God meets us. God deals with us where we're at to demonstrate his affection for us, to help us to grow in even more confidence. Something else that happened that to me is very gracious of the Lord and this, this is the awareness of God. The awareness when we realize, and Sarah did, that God was fully aware of who she was, where she's at, what's going on in her mind. In fact, the awareness is demonstrated very clearly. She, in the privacy of her part of the tent, is going to make the comment to her, laugh to herself and make the comment, and though she denies it, the, the Lord is saying, no, you said this. I know you said this. I know what was in your mind. I know what you meant by that laughter. Have you ever, have you ever said something? Have you ever giggled? And somebody says, oh, you're laughing at me. And you, you right away, you cover it up. I wasn't laughing at you. I was laughing. Yeah, we come up with something different. Okay, I, I didn't mean it that way. She's trying this. And God knows and God points out and says, well, no, wait a minute, I know. I know in fact, I know all about you. I know your body. I know your inabilities and your abilities in your body. I know your age. I know so much about you. I know your thoughts. I know your thought, what, you're, what you're feeling. And I even know what's going to happen in your future a year from now. And I know that you're going to have a child, and I can even tell you right now, before the child's conceived, what that child's going to be as far as gender. I know all these things. That awareness that God has, I think, just prompts her to come to a point of saying, God knows this so, knows so much about me, I can trust him. What does Jesus, how does he say in the New Testament? When he's talking about you and I trusting, and he's dealing with the idea of we shouldn't worry, we shouldn't fret. He even brings into the idea of our bodies that God knows so much about us, we can trust him. And what does he use for the illustration? God knows the very hairs on your head. He knows you so good. And that is that, that point that Jesus is making, because God knows so much about you, because of his awareness, that should prompt you to trust him a little bit more. And so the thoughts that she has, he knew them immediately, completely, all the thoughts, exactly what they were. And so that awareness has impact. Now, let's make some observations, some lessons for that. Okay? We grow spiritually when we remember this. We are on God's minds. He does think about us. How's Sarah doing? Where is she right now? It's not that he had lost Sarah and didn't know where she was in the tent, but he is demonstrating that he is concerned about her. When, when Abraham is concerned about the job, he's concerned about the hospitality, these visitors are concerned about Sarah and what her condition is. God is concerned about us. Even 
even in all that is going on, he still has you upon his heart and upon his mind. What a fabulous God we serve. We grow spiritually when we realize we can't hide. We can't hide the doubts, the questions about God. You know, I, I frequently get asked this question is by people that say, you know, I'm so discouraged, I'm so, I'm so down, you know, I, I don't even feel like, you know, I, I can pray because, you know, how can I go to God, you know, when, when I have doubts on my mind? Does God know you have doubts in your mind? Yeah, yeah. Even if you don't say them out loud, does God know you have, that you're struggling? Yes, he does. And so even when we go to on prayer and if we're struggling, it's an amazing thought when you go through the book of Lamentations that Jeremiah is really battling and he's really discouraged. And every time in Jeremiah, all five chapters, he starts off talking about how discouraged he is and how despondent he is and how he is struggling with faith. But at the end of every chapter, he's built up. Why? Because he's become absolutely transparent with the Lord to say, God, here is my battle. And as I share my battle with you and understand that I cannot hide from you, I need you to work in my spirit. I need you to change me. We grow in our faith. When we realize we cannot hide, think this through, we cannot hide behind the faith of other family members. We are expected to grow in faith ourselves. And God is going to bring us ourselves to a growth in faith. If that means a trial in your life, that may affect other family members or not. He's wanting to build you. It's not just about building one or two in the family. God wants every one of his children in every family unit they're at to grow in grace. And he will do and give and he will encourage and he will provide impetus and incentive and occasion for you to grow. And so we look at this and say, okay, if God knows my every word, my every thought, God knows where I need to grow and God is trying to build me, man of days, if he knows my strengths and he knows my weaknesses, I can trust him. He will never give me more than I can, than I can handle. Never do that. Okay? And when he gives me things, he knows what I am capable of doing and how I can serve him with those difficulties. So we grow in trust. We grow in trust when we think about his repeated assurances. The repeated assurances to his children. In this case, it's very simple. This is now the fourth time that Abraham is going to have a face-to-face -face conversation with God, this time with a body attached, and he's going to be saying, you're going to have a child, and this time more of the detail is Sarah's going to have the child, and it's that promise and Abraham who has shared it with it but now it's repeated for assurance sake. God knows Abraham had shared it. God knows that, that she had heard this probably before but she needed those reassurances and God in his grace gives them to her. Gives her all that she needs to know so that nothing, she realized nothing is too hard for the Lord. And he says that in the year of this, this cycle, it's kind of a weird phrase that, that our King James has recorded it where it makes the comment um Oh, where do I say? Uh, da, 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 where he makes the comment about the year. Oh, this down in, according to the time of life, verse 10. I will certainly return on the according to the time of life. All this is, is the phrase is just the cycle of the year. Okay, that she, by next year you're going to have this baby type of an idea. And so it's very clear that God is giving reassurance. And by the way, does God repeat promises for our benefit in the New Testament? Sure, sure. Does he take you to the same passages sometimes? Yes, he does, just to build us up because he's gracious. Let's, let's talk about something else in the second half of the chapter. There is the display of answered prayers. 
Now she is going to hear about the answered prayers. She's going to hear from what Abraham's discussion. So there's no doubt he's not going to keep this private. And in fact it's recorded for many people to hear. So why would he keep it from Sarah? But in this occasion, now the supper is ended. They're ready to leave. Sarah has been given her, her part of the, of the conversation from God directly. And now the angels start going away. And the Christ Christophany pauses. It says in verse 16, the men rose up from thence, looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. So he's doing the, the good thing, giving direction as he th- saw fit. The Lord said, shall I hide any from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. By the way, verse 18, what is he referring to that I am going to bless you? Abraham, should I hide something? Because I'm giving you so many other blessings. So many things that I'm entrusting you with. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to help you. I, I, I'm going to reward your faith. Should I hide this, some, what I'm going to do now from this same person that, that I'm entrusting all these other blessings with? Yeah, and he goes on. He makes the comment. For I know him that he will command his children, his household after him. They shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. And the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. The Lord said, okay, Abraham, I want to tell you something. Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grievous, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Christophany. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Will you also destroy and not spare the place for fifty righteous that are there? Okay, let's stop. Here we have this conversation that, that is very, very, very well known. You all know this. You, you've, you've heard this in Sunday school since little. There's a conversation that takes place between the, spirit, the, the Lord and Abraham. And in this conversation, Abraham is going to go to prayer and he's going to say, please spare the city for 50. How about for 45? How about 40? And it looks like they're doing a bidding war here. But he's going to get God to agree that if there's how many people that are righteous, he will spare the entire city. 10. Okay. And so there's this conversation. The big, the big point out of this part of the text is Abraham's faith shown in that he was praying intercessory prayers. There's a huge demonstration here of how faith is to operate. And so what is apparent in my mind is that God speaks to Abraham, tells him what he's going to do, for what reason? To prompt Abraham to do this intercession. To prompt Abraham to get in. God doesn't owe this to Abraham. Abraham, I can't hide because you are such a great man. Initial reading, somebody first time reading, say, well, he's really commending Abraham, how he trains his family, how he does that. But, you know, and therefore Abraham deserves to know. Well, we know that's not true. He, he doesn't have to tell Abraham. It's just that idea that Abraham, I have blessed you in so many things and I've told you so many things. I'm not going to keep this back from you. And there's a reason because I know you'll handle the information the right way. If I tell you information that's even a negative piece of information, I know you're you're going to respond the right way. And he does. The right way in responding, God commends him in verse 19 that he is going to share truth, that he is going to instruct his family. The right, right way in responding when you hear about judgment is to do what? Is to pray for people. Is to pray. And isn't this true even in our day and age? Knowing the judgment of God should prompt us to pray for other people. 
to pray that there would be repentance on their part, to beg and to plead that God would use the preaching, use something, and their spirit would, would be wooed and that the Holy Spirit would convict them and that they would respond and that there would be others that would give them the word and they would be bombarded with the truth and the invitation so that they would respond to the gospel and get born again. God doesn't tell us about hell so that we can rejoice that people are going there. God doesn't tell us about damnation or destruction to those who would do their own things so that we can just stand with righteousness and say, oh great, it's about time they're going to get it one day. God tells us to prompt us to do something now. When Jesus Christ paused and thought about what was going to happen to Jerusalem within a few decades after his arrival, did he rejoice or did he pray and weep over the city? He prayed and wept. You and I, by looking at the Word of God, we hear, we read that there is a judgment, a judgment at times in this life upon brothers and sisters in Christ that if they rebel, if they go and do their own thing, that there is a sin unto death. Are we supposed to, according to 2 Corinthians, are we, or 1 John, are we to pray for this or do we pray for repentance? 1 John 5 says we pray for the repentance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're not supposed to rejoicing over the idea that somebody is getting themselves into all kinds of evil. We're to rather mourn and plead and pray that this person repents. I demonstrated this evening, or I shared with you this evening, again about one of our young people who is dabbling in areas that they ought not to dabble, who is in a situation where you and I should be engaged in praying for that person, hearing about the dilemma, hearing about the struggle in their life, hearing the struggle that the parents have, praying and upholding them. That should be our response. When Abraham hears about what's going to happen to his relatives in Sodom, if they're not rescued, if that city's not spared, Abraham who was a righteous man, who knew God's holiness, he goes to pray. He says, God, please, can, we, can I intercede on their behalf? And I believe that is a biblical, uh, biblical concept that if you and I think this through, that our God that we serve is a merciful, holy God. Holy God, yet merciful and patient at times. And because of his mercy and patience, we should use these days as moments of intercession. How do we read where, where we read in the New Testament? How does it go in Second Peter? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but the Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that what? That any should perish. In Ezekiel, we read this, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn we, turn ye, he says to Ezekiel, to go out and preach this. Call people to repentance. Will God in justice and judgment and holiness, will there be damnation for some? Yes. Is that because God delights in the destruction of people? No. The passage I was quoting a moment ago that you're familiar with. He is not willing that any should perish, but what does he prefer? That all should come to repentance. So should we. We should not be the Pharisees that he talks about in Luke 15 who were rejoicing over the fact that people were going to be destroyed, but when they hear about the lost sheep, when they hear about the lost coin, when they hear about the prodigal come back, he tries to demonstrate that God is a God who rejoices in repentance, and you and I should be moved to the point that we want to pray. In fact, in Psalm 106, look at this. 
Therefore he said that he would destroy them. God going to destroy the Israelites in the wilderness. But had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath lest he should destroy them. Intercessory prayer intercessory prayer on the part of God's people. And that was what God is prompting in this text, showing that he is gracious to give the answers. It's obvious that he was willing to listen to Abraham, willing to even spare this city because of Abraham's pleading. Now the city we know, we know the end of the story. It's not spared. And it's not because Abraham failed. It's not that God wasn't willing to spare. The failure is in whose life? There's another character that comes into play. Who's? Lots. Lots is the one that brings the damnation to the city. God displayed a willingness to listen to Abraham. God wanted to go even beyond and listen to Abraham, ask several times. Six times there's this conversation that says, will you adjust your, time, your, your numbers? Grace was on display big time. Why did Abraham stop at 10? Because he expected Lot to do something. And we'll get into it next time we get into this study in a couple weeks. But if we count Lot's family, just the minimum, there should have been 10 people, right? You got Lot. Who else do we have? He got his wife. He's got his two daughters that leave the city with him. Do you remember? He has two daughters that are married, and they have, that's not to be complicated here, but if they're married, they have they have their husbands, okay? So you have them. Plus it says that Mr. and Mrs. Lot have sons. That means they have how many? They have at least two sons. So you add that up together, what do we have? You got a minimum of 10 people. And so a Lot is, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham is praying with the idea that if Lot just does the bare minimum and gets his family so that they are, they are righteous and doing what they're supposed to be doing, then this entire city would be spared. And God is, is willing to spare it, not willing that any should perish. What do I learn about intercessory prayer in this passage? Oh, several things, real quickly. Several thoughts go to mind. It's got to be done personally. Abraham did it. He was prompted to pray by God telling him what was going to happen, and he did it. When God tells you from the Word of God how He's going to respond in Judgment Day, does that move you to pray for people? It ought. It ought. That's the whole idea. It needs to be done with compassion. Compassion that says, please, please, zealous compassion, praying for God's merciful conviction and grace to be displayed on individuals for repentance. It needs to be done with humility. Look at the phrase in verse 27. And again, I'm assuming you all know the story very well. It says, Abraham said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. You don't have to listen to me. But please, 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 it needs to be persistent. As we already said, he goes for the 50, the 45, the 40, and whittles it down with persistence, pleading with the Lord, and God being, being one who is willing to do it. And when I think about intercessory prayer, here's what I know. It's pleasing to God. It pleases him. He, he commends it. He encourages it. I know it's profitable. Now, in this case, we know that in this case, it didn't save the city, but it wasn't because of the lack of praying. It wasn't because of the lack of God's willingness to listen to the prayer where they concluded. It was Lot's failure. And so in this time where we read about the idea of it being profitable, there are other cases. Like the man in Corinth who was involved with great immorality, he did repent. Even though there was the warning, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, the man does repent. 
We read about in 2 Corinthians. We read about others who have repented in time. We know of cases it's profitable. It is something that is to be done personally made by you and me where we pray, we pray, we ask the Lord to intercede to work in people's life. That's the real McCoy. The real McCoy of faith is something that is functioning. Something in faith that says, I believe God. I trust God. And I'm going to act upon my belief and my faith. I'm going to grow in my faith. I'm going to take God at his word. And once I hear his word like Sarah, I'm going to apply it. And I'm going to realize that my God does have affection. He has awareness. He gives me assurances. He's willing to answer my prayers. And so with that in mind, I'm going to grow in faith to the point that I trust him. And I'm going to act upon that trust by even praying and praying and pleading that God would move and there would be great changes. There's a true story that comes out of history. In 1845, John Franklin leaves England. He and a group of 100 and what is it, 130 something or another, 38 select Navy men are going to find the passage from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific around northern Canada. They believe it's there, they're going to explore, and they even take two of the most modern ships that have the capability that if they need, they can change over to steam. They've even got a huge extra area to call a large amount of coal so they can go by sail, they can go by steam. And so they start off on their journey. Two months into their journey, there's a whaling ship off the coast of, uh, of Canada that runs into them, and then they're never heard from again. Despite their modern devices, there is a letter found in one of the Prince William Island up towards far north Canada. They, they found some, some supplies they think belong to this group and a letter that indicated that the captain died somewhere in that region. But that's all we know. Nobody knows whatever happened to him. They think they got caught in the ice flows and they eventually were destroyed. The problem with this whole adventure is that they went out full of confidence. There was the bands playing. There was every, you know, the Royal Navy was at their peak saying, we've, we've underwritten this thing. It's going to be done. And they gave the guys a few overcoats. They gave them a few scarves. They gave them some supplies, but thought it would be done very quickly because these are great men. In fact, that whole section of both ships that were designed to carry all this extra coal that could keep them going for a period of up to almost a month if they needed, they decided at the last minute not to put any coal on those ships. The officers thought that they needed an officer's lounge. And so in the officer's lounge, they put the sofas, they brought in thousands of library books, they even brought in china so they could eat eloquently. They were so confident and they were playing this adventure going into northern Canada, into the Arctic, not knowing what they were getting into. Is it any surprise that they failed? That they went in not ready for the real battle? Not ready for the elements that they were going to face? You know, the bottom line is you and I are going to face elements spiritually. We're going to face some difficult times. We cannot afford to let the, lo- the links that chain of faith that ties us to the Lord be broken. Prayer will keep us there. Faith will keep us on our knees and trusting the Lord and not playing a game spiritually, not going on some little adventure of comfort, but realizing we're in for, we're in for the northern whales, the gales and the, the winds. and We need to be prepared. 
We need to know what we're facing, that we're in difficult days. Abraham, Sarah, you need to be prepared for what's ahead. It's going to get really difficult. Build your faith. Get on your knees. The same message is for you and me. Let's take advantage of it this evening. Let's pray.